you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And our study this morning is going to take us from verses 6 through 21. And if you will, I'd ask you to stand as we read God's word for us this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor, of, uh, in favor against one another. For, he, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would, that, and, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ? We are weak, but you're strong? You are held in honor? Yet we are in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly, dis, dis, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor against, um, we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. As my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ, Jesus, through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I am not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. Yeah. Uh, just an observation. Um, it's deeply encouraging to see young men on the front row. I don't, I, for me, at least, it is. Um, and I'm not trying to make a big deal of you. This is, you know, it's not about you guys. I love the fact you're here. Hopefully that means there's some hunger for God's word that you'll be like, okay, A-listers on the front row, right? Um, but glad you're there, man. And I hope you guys will be locked in, okay? Um, guys, we're getting back into 1 Corinthians this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this book. Lots of things have transpired in, in, uh, in, over the last few weeks, especially in the Agnew household. And uh, so it's good to kind of get back into a track of just studying God's word piece by piece, verse by verse. And, and so um, let me just give you a little bit of a, uh, a lay of the land, if you will, for the next few weeks, uh, what's you, what you can expect. We're going to come back into 1 Corinthians. We're going to take it through Mother's Day. And then we're going to stop for the summer a little bit early. And we're going to go into the, a series called Summer in the Psalms. And that's going to take us basically from mid-May 
all the way through July, and then we'll pick back up in 1 Corinthians in, in August, when basically when school starts back up for most people, and then we'll carry that all the way through most of the fall as well. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I won't go into details there, but I'm super excited about the study in the Psalms because I feel like this is one of those. There's so much richness there. It's, it is literally the hymn book of the Bible, and it's a great reference for us, and, it, and it's not a hymn book that's afraid of feelings. It's not a hymn book that's afraid of raw reality of life, and I'm excited to get into that, and we got a few of our elders who are going to be helping preach that series this summer, so we're pretty excited about jumping into that. And I will give more details. And I'm hoping, if I can get my act together, to have be able to provide some kind of book that you got, notebook you guys can uh, use to study the Psalms in their entirety, or at least a bunch of them in their entirety this summer. And I got a plan in my mind. I'll let you know more about that as time come on. But just pray that 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 all comes to pass over the course of the next um, few few weeks. Now, as we all know spring has sprung, right? I was out at the soccer park all day yesterday, got there pretty early, got done pretty late, and uh, it was nice, beautiful day. I mean, the sun was blaring down, got a little bit of sun. Everyone in my home got home, and we were all pretty uh, sun-kissed for sure. And, um, but you know what happens when, this, when, when spring comes, right? Everyone who has a home, who has a yard, knows exactly what I'm about to say. The weeds start creeping up, right? The, um, I got more onions in my yard than I got grass, right? Who's, in, who's, who's with me on that one, right? I, I mean, onions everywhere. Like, my dog starts digging because I think he smells it. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. And so when we get into this time of year, you know, we can do everything we can to, to kill those onions, those weeds that keep creeping up. And I try to do my best. Some years I do better than others. This year's not going to be the best year for us. But you keep on spraying. You keep on working. You keep on those But because you know... If you don't keep at it, what happens? They will creep back up in time. They're, that's just the reality of trying to maintain a yard, right? Well, the same thing happens in our life. This is the way sin works in our life, does it not? That it's not just like, hey, say a prayer, walk an aisle, and all of a sudden I'm free from sin. Or if I do a Bible study or I show up to a group or I show up to church, that somehow or another sin's not going to um, affect us. In fact, sin affects us in uh, so many different ways, and and and, yet, and it hits some of us in very particular ways, as opposed to others' more particular proclivities in our lives. And there's some that they're really constant in our life. But as Justin prayed this morning, like the weeds in my yard, I got to keep fighting them. And there's one that I think Paul's touching on in this passage we just read. That is, that is common to all of us, um, it, that we're all prone to, we all have some sense of a battle against spiritual arrogance or spiritual pride. Now, some of you in your head just said, I don't have a problem with that, and you just proved my point, <laughs> right? And Because I was even wrestling with this myself. I was like, okay, that's fine. Maybe it's there. I've met some spiritually arrogant people, but, but as we dive into this text this morning, I think we're going to see how much it really speaks to who we are on the inside and who we really know we are from that. And, and really, like Josh said in class, we asked the question, why is it so hard for us to rest and trust in God's work towards us and know that he loves us and not always want to lean in on our own um, abilities, right, to fix ourselves? And so I think this spiritual arrogance is the root of that. Pride is what we've been talking about over these last few weeks. There's been this big block in chapters 1 through 4 um, as we've gotten into this study, and Paul's been dealing with the divisions and factions in the church that is revealing the, pro the problem of pride, the problem of judgmentalism. And so if you remember, I know it's been a few weeks, remember the last time we were in 1 Corinthians, 
Um, we were in dealing with those first five verses or so of chapter four, and there he's been dealing with that judgmentalism and how we need to not live under the judgment of others, but live within um, the commendation of Christ, that we live in light of who he is and what he's accomplished for us. And that's so hard because we, we tend to let the judgments of the world, judgments of others, cripple us, don't we? We tend to live in fear of man or fear of life and fear of the world, and we can be so caught up in, well, I've got to prove something in myself. I've got this and so there's this tyranny of judgment of others and and their their thoughts about us they sometimes can be very crippling but when we live as we saw in uh those first five verses of chapter four the 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 combination of christ we begin to see more freedom in our lives we get to see more freedom from sin a better fight over sin now paul takes a turn here though because paul's not done with judgmentalism yet He's not just giving us a nice little one-two devotional about how to deal with the judgmentalism and the pride in our life and, the, and, and all these kinds of things. He actually is now going to take a deep dive into pride and judgmentalism that festers in the heart and why it's there. Why is judgmentalism, why does pride, why, why does it, where does it come from? And the reality is, as I said earlier, it's in all of us. And it manifests itself in a whole lot of different ways. I, listen, God has been, I think, I honestly feel like maybe some of the things that have been going on in our life really are about this text, for, at least for me personally. I'm wrestling with a lot of the things that are in here this morning, so I'm just going to be very honest with you. Um, and so as he's swinging this pendulum away from resting in the commendation of Christ, but actually zeroing in on that, that judgmentalism, judgmental spirit, that, that prideful spirit, that spiritually arrogant spirit that seems to be somewhat perennial, like the weeds in our yard, He's going to show us some wonderful things here about how to deal with that. He's going to reveal what it is, where it comes from. And then in this text, we're going to find some ways to fight it. Okay? So there's three texts, there's three points I want to talk about this morning. First of all, the subtlety of spiritual arrogance. You might want to call it the sneakiness of spiritual arrogance. Um, the, the second thing is going to be the, the, the poor expectations, the, the faulty expectations that drive our spiritual arrogance. And then last is going to be how the, the, the means of fighting spiritual arrogance. So let's just talk about that first point here in verses 6 and 7 from the subtlety of spiritual arrogance. Remember again, verse 6, I apply all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Now, we don't really know exactly why Paul is talking about why, hey, he's referencing him and Apollos, but probably he's using him and Apollos as an example of the fact that they've been dividing over their, their leaders into their own little camps, and he's now pulling him and Apollos together and saying, actually, we're not, you're not following anything of our model. You're following in your prideful ways about their skills and all that kind of stuff, but really, me and me, we want to show you and ourselves there's a something different about who we are and about what God has done in our life. And so he's going to get into that here in a few minutes. And then he goes on, do not go beyond what is written. Now, we don't, there's a lot of debate out there about what this actually means. Um, it could mean he's referencing the Old Testament. It could mean that he's referring to some letter he's written previous to this point. Um, it could mean that it's just a local colloquialism, Right. Um, I tend to go with the, many of the commentators and believe that he is referencing Scripture, but he's probably referencing the, the passed-down tradition of gospel proclamation, the gospel message. He says, you're going beyond the gospel. 
You're going beyond the hope and truth of the gospel in the way you're approaching the structures and the way you're engaging with the church and how you believe you should, who you should lead, follow leaders. And these leaders are now leading from arrogance, not from humility and self-sacrifice and suffering. And so I tend to be more convinced of, of that end. And the reason why that's important is because of what he says in verses, verse uh, 7, or six, rest of 6 all the way through 7, that none of you may be puffed up. Don't go beyond what's written. Don't go beyond what's been transmitted to you. Don't go beyond the gospel so that you may not be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive, he says. And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, the opposite of finding commendation in Christ, as we saw back in verses 1 through 5, is what? It's arrogance. It's, it's that religious knowledge and experience, and I've, I've arrived, I've, I've got enough of this. I hear this sometimes, like I've got enough knowledge of the doctrine of God. I've got, I've got enough knowledge. I, I, I'm, I'm checking off the boxes. If you're a good Baptist, you know what I'm talking about. Like we used to have these little you know, giving envelopes, and you had to check off how did, well you did, if you did your devotions that week, if you did your, uh, read your Bible, if you, if you came to Sunday school, if you gave that week. Like that's the way... Honestly, in a very strange way, that's exactly the way many Christians approach their Christian life. And it's, a, it's really the way that, in some ways, the, first Corinth, the church, Corinthian church is dealing with this. And so right away, we see in these verses, he's saying, look, the biggest issue I have is that you're getting too easily puffed up against one against another. These divisions come from your own arrogance. And it's because, and we'll see this more in detail here, is because you've forgotten what you've received. And that you didn't do anything to receive it. So this spiritual arrogance is a very subtle reality that sneaks into all of our lives, does it not? It's so easy and so quick to, to forget the gospel of grace. To remember what Christ has done for us. And then we move and we shift into these places where we have to lean in on ourselves, our own expertise, and whatever it may be. And so the Corinthians were unaware that they had been affected by this spiritual arrogance. And how subtle and how sneaky it was. Like most sin, spiritual arrogance doesn't have to be learned, does it? it doesn't, it's, an innate, it's innate into our fallen nature. We, we still live like Adam. We, we want to still believe we have something to contribute, that we have to fix ourselves. And that's why the gospel is so hard for us to grasp, because it is so otherworldly. It's so outside the frame of what we would conceive the world to be. And so we still live within this spiritually arrogant mentality, even if it's arrogant on the surface. Like we all know you've met the arrogant person, right? But this, we're not talking about just that person. We're talking about that kind of inside holdout that says, I still have to figure this out. I still have to get some things in order in order to be accepted by God, to be proven by God. That, that, that's, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, spiritual arrogance is innate. Like, go down to the nursery and watch our children play with toys and see how they're treating Like, No, that's my toy. And they'll, they'll go and take one out of another, hands, another one's hands. You've seen this in your homes. We, I've seen it in, in my homes. We do this all the time. Like, I know it's mine. It's mine. This is about me. This is about me. Friends, we don't, without with the gospel and without the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't really grow beyond that. We think that's just childish things, but that's kind of how humanity lives. No, it's mine. I got to get mine. I got you, 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 to protect my interests here. So arrogance shows up in our lives in a different ways, but... Not a whole lot different. Like all the strife in our marriages, what is it about? Me. Me getting my part of the marriage, what I think I should get out of the marriage. 
What are the problems that I have, we have in churches? Is it, is it not me? That I'm not getting what I want out of the church? That I'm not getting the kind of programs or the fellowship or the friendships I want out of the church? Isn't all strife that arises in our lives about us? Center around us? And that the Christian life is ultimately about me? How many times do we write the story of our Christian faith and a Christian journey and our Christian discipleship about more about self-improvement projects than it is about exalting and loving and resting in Jesus? So it's sneaky. And, and we don't realize it's there sometimes. And we didn't have to learn it. But what we have to learn is not to be puffed up. What we have to learn as I point out so many times, is pride isn't just look at me, right? It's not just that that guy, I'm awesome. But no, it manifests itself in some terribly awful ways too, right? Like, like I'm terrible, I'm awful, I, I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm never going to get my act together, life's never going to be good for me. Like, that's pride too. It's just the other side of the coin of pride. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, right? That the root of pride is self-focus. And he says it's not, it's not so much humility isn't thinking less of yourself, right? Like you're just always Debbie Downer on yourself. Sorry, my dad, friends. I said that by accident. I shouldn't have said that because I've been reminded to say that word, right? Because Debbies aren't downers. If you met the Debbies in our church, they're awesome, all right? But, but they're downers, right? Just getting myself out of trouble a little bit later, okay? All right. But humility isn't thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of yourself less, right? Everyone knows that statement. Most of us do. So in other words, it's, it's self-forgetfulness, not self-focus. Spiritual, spiritual arrogance rises out of self-focus, does it not? You, you're not? you pretend we can look humble on the outside and we can look like we're just putting ourselves out there and we're sacrificing ourselves, but really you are thinking of yourself more if we're not careful. That's where spiritual arrogance does. It twists the grace of God in some really weird ways in our lives. It's self-forgiveness, not self-focus. It's, it's, it's either that I have to, I'm always awesome or I'm always terrible, and that's a really bad way to look at life. And the common denominator is what? I. It's still about you. It's still about me. It's a subtle sin. But then in verse 7, he says, okay, well, this is how you're going to have to kill it. Like he intends verse 7 to be the killer of it all, right? And let's just read again. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you act as if you, or boast as if you did not receive it? And what Paul's trying to say here is if we have experienced the grace of God, if we have been saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, then we have no right to have a self-focus, a, a self-swagger, if you will. It's okay to be confident. There's nothing wrong with being confident. But a kind of swagger that says it's, it goes beyond Christ. I, I'm still leaning on myself. Because like, what's Paul saying here? What, what, did you, what did you do? Well, you got saved. But who did that? Newsflash, not you. Not me. Who rescued you? Who ransomed you? Who pulled you out of that muck and mire that you've been drowning in all of your life? You didn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You didn't do that. I didn't do that. You, pull, you were pulled up out of, like, out of Christ. Like you have no room to boast in yourself. Like you didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. 
So if we have no room to boast, if we have no room to be puffed up, no room to be self-righteous and thinking my way's always the right way. No, there's got to be humility that is produced by grace through the work of the Spirit. You've seen the little bumper stickers that say Jesus is my co-pilot. Now, if you are... Um, if, if you're reformed or sovereign of God things, you realize real, real quickly what's wrong with that. And it's this. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. Right? It's just the reality of it. I, he, I, if, I, when I start seeing and perceiving him as someone who, who's just there to kind of help me along, I, I, I've said this, it's been a while since I've said this, but you've seen the illustration, you've heard the illustration where people say Jesus is, you know, we're drowning in the ocean and Jesus throws us out the raft, right? And as if somehow or another we're still struggling and we just need a little bit of help to kind of pull us into the ship. Friends, you need way more than just a little bit of help. You're on the bottom of that ocean floor. You are blue as blue can be. You're as dead as dead can be. And Jesus dives in and he breathes new life into you and takes you all the way home. When you get the gospel right, it's, it's really, really, really hard for spiritual arrogance to thrive, isn't it? So if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you, like, you know this, right? Like we, I think we get this. I, I, I know you well, and, but yet the sneakiness of spiritual arrogance is still there. Like We know this truth is up here, but sometimes we don't know it here, and we don't really know it in our hands, right? We don't know that. And so, look, some friends, like, let's lean in on this. Life isn't about how awesome you are or how needed you are. That second one is a real big deal for me. I wire my life sometimes about how much I'm needed. And I have to put that before the Lord regularly. See, that's prideful too. Because I'll take my people's need of me and I'll wire my identity in that and my self-worth in that. And brothers and sisters, my self-worth is not in that. It's in Christ. It's in my commendation in Christ. I'll wire myself in such a way that that's kind of how. So I'll put on. You know, we, we you know we'll do this with social media. And we'll look at. We'll tell people how great our quiet times are, or how great this part of our life is, or how great this part of my life is, and we just have it all together. I'm holy. I got it together. I pray three times a day. I tithe my deal in cumin. I praise you, Lord, that I'm not like the tax collector. Friends, Jesus has something to say about that, right? So I'm telling you, spiritual arrogance is subtle, and it's there, and it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, and it shows up in a whole lot of different ways. But what I want to do now is I want to show you that there's really a way here Paul's revealing about spirit, the, the source of spiritual arrogance that I think is very helpful, and that goes, leads us into number two, this, our misaligned expectations that drive our spiritual arrogance. Look at verse um, Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Would, you do, um, would that you did reign so that you might share the, we might share the rule with you. Like, let me, let me just say something. If you, if you think sarcasm's cool, then you really like Paul right now. Okay? Like, Josh, where are you at? Where's Josh at? Is he back here? Like, Josh, this is for you. All right, if y'all know Josh, Josh is like super, super sarcastic. Is he not? Is he down there? All right, so maybe he heard me, but it's a super sarcastic mode, right? Like me and Amanda's love language in our marriage is sarcasm, okay? So I'm very glad that Paul is getting sarcastic. I mean, just the way he writes this, you are already, I have all you want. You've become rich. you become like kings. Oh, that you would become kings so that we might rule with you. Like 
This is Paul being really sarcastic about their assumptions, their expectations about where they've arrived in their spiritual life. And this is what we do with our Christian life is we, we dial it in and we say, well, if, if I have these evidences of life, whether it's stability or comfort or, or, or lots of friendships or everything's just going really well, like we, we kind of have this all that I'm good spiritually. And so then we dial in and we think all of our, all of our relationship, all of our, rela- all of our stuff. See, Josh came in too late, didn't he? So you'll listen to the sermon later, brother. You'll see. Um, but uh, anyway, I use, um, but, but this is what we live, right? We live in this place where we just think that like we measure our spiritual lives based on like how life feels or how life's going. But how does that work when like the bottom falls out? Does that mean that your spiritual life's in the tanker? We kind of live our spiritual lives as if, well, if, if, if everything's bad in my life, well, that means mean that my spiritual life's bad or, or, I'm, or I'm, got, I'm, I'm off with God. Now, it could be that. There might be some sin. There certainly could be some sin in your life in that regard or in my life. But what Paul's doing with here is this, this Corinthian assumption behind their spiritual arrogance about, like, this is what it means. Like, man, like, I, I, I've got it together, man. Everything's looking good. It's like teaching a teenager how to drive. I know this because I've recently learned how to do this. It's not fun, okay? He's not here, so I can talk about him all I want to right now, okay? But, like, I've sat in the car, and I've had a 16-year-old or 15-year-old boy tell me more about driving than I've ever known in my entire life, right? I love him to death, and I can't wait till he gets his first ticket, guys. I really can't wait. I, I'm, I'm going to sit there and just going to enjoy that moment. It's going to be a sweet moment. It's going to be awesome, right? That's... Like, it's like teaching them, like, they, they got it together. I've learned nothing at 47 years old about driving. I know nothing to tell you. Caleb, you need, no. I, okay, just, just go ahead and run the stop sign. It's okay, son. It's okay. Let's just do it. It's going to be good. This is how we treat the Christian life right. Whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer all your life, it's like when someone has something to say to you or wants to speak into your life, we've got it together, right? <sighs> That's why it's so hard sometimes to take instruction and, and counsel from friends. Josh was talking about himself in class this morning. It's really hard sometimes to receive thing, good things and, 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 and support from other people. I know this a lot. Friends, I'm very prideful. I'm, I can be exactly what's being described in this text. And you don't have to, again, you don't have to be a new believer for this. You can be humming along great in your Christian life. Been at church every Sunday all you want to. But, but having someone speak into your life and reveal things, man, like we always have the answer to everything, right? And that's what verse 8 and following is trying to tell us. And, and, and so Paul deals and continues his sarcastic tone here in verses 9 through 13. For I think that God has exhibited as us as apostles as last of all. So you're, you got it all together. You're powerful. You got kings. You're rich. Great. But you know, God seems to be working in our life as if um, we're last of all, like men sentenced to death, he says. Again, sarcastically saying, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And then he just goes through those like comparisons, right? Verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you're wise in Christ? We are weak, but you're strong? We were held in honor, but, I mean, you were held in honor, but we are of disrepute? 
To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. We we revile, we blast, when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So if you if you go, if you if you're if you've had an opportunity to do premarital counseling with me and Amanda, one of the things that we do extensively in, in our premarital counseling time is we try to help young couples get their expectations right about marriage. And I've said this before. I mean, honestly, I, I'm, I'm surprised some people even get married when they get out uh, of uh, premarital counseling. It's just, it's, it it's can be crazy. Um, because there's always, like, as I'm reading and studying for that right now, working with, um, well, what we're looking with, they're not here this morning, but Lucas and Summer. Like, we've been, are they here? No, I, 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 I may miss them, but anyway. Um, the point is, is, like, there's always four things that, like, like we always ask about front. Because these are these, what are your expectations as it relates to money, as it relates to children, as it relates to sex, and frankly, your in-laws, right? Like in-laws, man, I, listen, if you've married your kids off, like y'all have messed them up, y'all. I mean, you really have. I mean, mine have too. And you, we bring in all these expectations, and maybe it's not even your fault, but they've, they've, they've been wired to something they bring it into that marriage, right? And so it's just walking through those difficulties, looking through those faulty expectations about how magical marriage, is going to be, marriage life is going to be. It's not going to be like the movies. It's not going to be like any of those things at all. But this is exactly how spiritual arrogance works in our life. It's that we think we've got it. We think we can figure it out just like we do. We come into all of our life and we think we've got all the answers. You think you can read enough books about how to make the perfect marriage and make the perfect life. You can't do it because there's this thing called sin that is going to mess up all of that constantly. Always. And so it manifests itself in holding out these faulty expectations about the Christian life. Like, I believe the Corinthian church would have loved the heretical teaching of prosperity gospel teaching. Right? It just feels that way as you read through the text. Like, this is what they would want. This is the end of it, right? Like, if you believe in God enough, you'll be rich. If you're healthy, you'll be healed, and everything will go your way. Like, the prosperity gospel is just adding Jesus' name like a fortune cookie. And this is what the Corinthian church is doing here. They're just kind of adding Jesus' name to the mix as like a fortune cookie. But this is a bold-faced lie. Jesus isn't a fortune cookie. I mean... What Paul is hammering away with, and friends, look at, you know, he's, he's saying, look, look at my life. It's not always been great. It's not always been easy. Look at how things are right now. Sometimes life has been despair-inducing for Paul. And listen, if you, if you meet a believer who's gone through, like, really difficult times, and they're holding on, maybe even a weird way to Jesus, and yet in the midst of all that despairing reality, that's a person you need to sit with for a while. That's a person you need to learn with because that's a person who's learned to hold on their faith in some of life's difficult places. It's not only is it a lie, though. It, like I said, it's despair-inducing in our life. When we believe that that's what it's God, our relationship with God is just exchanges, right? You do this, God, I'll do that, and this happens, Awesome. That's despair-inducing because when we do all that we can do and yet nothing changes in our life, what does it do to our faith? Well, it leads it shipwrecked because we don't know if we can believe in the God that we say we believe in. And it's all because we've rewired grace. It's all because we rewired the gospel. That's not true. 
sometimes our spiritual arrogance, we think it should be, though, right? We think it should be like heaven now. But that's not what it is. We want the elements of the world. We want the wisdom of the world, but we don't want the foolishness of Christ. Or we want the foolishness of Christ with all of the accoutrements of the world. But friends, you and I, as Jesus says, we can't have two masters, can we? There's no, like, I can love Christ and love the world. John talks about this constantly in his Gospels and in his epistles. You can't love Christ and can't love and love the world at the same time. Ultimately, love for the world will push out love for Christ, will it not? It will push out love for Christ and it will push out, and, and if we have love Christ, we'll push out love for the world. The Corinthian church, and sometimes many of us in here, want both. I mean, look at verse 10. Like I said, we've already looked at this, right? Like, we're fools. You're wise. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we're in disrepute. Paul's not commending a life of suffering here. He's just saying that the reality of the Christian life is not one where you get to this place where all your worldly affairs are just all perfectly and magically in shape. It's just not going to work. Friends, if the cross is folly, if the cross is an affront to the world, then it's not surprising that the apostles are regarded as scum, right? As Paul says. And that's the spirit of the age, right? When we just don't play by everyone else's rules, when we just don't believe and trust in and rest in the things that the world rests in, all the American things that we love so much that if we're not careful, we, they become greater than Jesus. See, friends, the Christian life is not a fast track to glory, but it's a slow, arduous path that takes one through, most times, many times, suffering, whether it's in seasons or long seasons. The suffering so visible in the lives of the apostles is not some tedious detour for an elite volunteer group, right? But it's the main highway that we Christians will travel. God is not to be found, one writer says, except in suffering and in the cross. And I'm going to butcher this because it just popped in my head, but I got a card this week from a family just love, you know, just trying to encourage me. And on the front of it's a famous Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, I've learned to, I think it is, I've learned to love the, um, the waves that make me crash into the rock of ages. And I know I butchered that, but forgive me. It's so true. Friends, don't live with faulty expectations. Suffering is normal, but God is good. All the time, God is good. See, both are true. Suffering is real, but God is good. We have the long road home, and it's filled and will be filled with unbelievable highs, and it'll be filled with unimaginable lows, but God is good in the midst of it all. And somehow I think heaven is going to be, seem better for the difficulty we face rather than for the ease that we face. Would you join me in that? I think that's got to be the reality, right? Because if, I mean, how, if, if all I've done is tried to pursue ease and numb my life with all the ease, easements of this world, 
how will I ever, ever like, really appreciate the beauty and the peace and the love and the, and the, and, and of heaven when I one day dwell there, when you one day dwell there? I mean, think about like a workout. How much better does food taste after a workout, Right? How much better does a gallon of water after you've worked out, like how much does that better that feel to you? Well, it's the same kind of thing. Suffering's normal. God is good. And when the roll is called up yonder, we'll see how, worth, how much it was worth. We really will. So let's, let's not be arrogant in our expectations of what we think the world's going to be like. Let's, and don't just think because you, are through, you go through difficulty that God is against you. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell. I'll put it that frankly. It's actually when he's probably closest. It might be when he's closest to you. Psalm 23, we all know it, right? We're going through the valley of the shadow of death. That's not, by the way, necessarily a graveside. That's about life. Like we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But I'll fear no evil. And those weeds will pop up as I go along and those onions of sin will pop up in my life, but I will live and rest in the perfect goodness and grace of God all the way through. We don't have to live with faulty expectations generated by spiritual arrogance or desire for the things of this world. So how do we fight this? This is verses 14 through 21, or mostly verses 14 through 21. He says, I didn't write these things to make you ashamed. He's not being sarcastic just to go, you know, my sarcasm is I just want to make you look silly, right? Um, but this is not the purpose of his sarcasm here. He's not just trying to make him feel bad. He's not trying to make him feel ashamed. I didn't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, encourage you, build you up, my brothers, my beloved children. So Paul's not, he's turning this harsh criticism, this harsh sarcasm and he says, listen, I'm doing this because I love you. This is the way Christians should love each other and should walk with you. I'm doing this because I love you and I'm for you. And I, and and I want to be like a good parent, as you will talk about here in a minute. And I want to see you flourish. And so verse 15 through 21, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ and through, the, and through Christ Jesus, through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved child and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of the ways in Christ. As I teach them to you everywhere in every church, some are arrogant as though I'm not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. But I will, but, but I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist of talk, but in power. Do you wish me to come to you with a rod or would you want me to come to you in a spirit of gentleness? So Paul's admonishing now. He's admonishing to fight the spiritual arrogance, to rid themselves of it, stand before the cross of Christ, stand in front of God's word, be a part of God's people who will help you see this. And across, and across the this whole text, he hits on a few ways here on how we would fight. Well, we've seen one of them in verse 6. Don't go beyond what is written. When I say don't be going beyond what is written, like when he says this, again, I believe what he's talking about there is the gospel that has been proclaimed, that has been transmitted to you, that they're so tempted to go beyond. And of course, the scriptures. Don't go beyond what is written in some licentious way. 
In other words, you'll go and we'll do this sometimes and we'll give ourselves all kinds of license to do whatever we want to do. That's not good. But also don't go beyond what is written in legalism either. Like, like these are one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. They're both adding something to their experience of the gospel, but in very different ways. So don't go beyond what is written. Like be committed to the scriptures, be committed to a church that's committed to their confessional standards and, 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 and trust in those things. But yet at the same time, more than that, trust in the perfect work of Jesus for you. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So the big idea here is true humility means we, we topple self from the throne. Do not go beyond, riddle, go beyond what is written. We're saying, I'm taking myself off the throne. I am not the judge of my life nor anyone else's life. And so maybe you're sitting in this room this morning and you're just in the pit. You've been in the pit. You've been sitting in the pit for a whole long time. And I'm asking you to repent of that pride. Not me. Paul is. The scriptures are. Return to the, to the lover of your soul and how he's revealed himself to you through his word. See, Jesus, the only way you come out of the pit is when Jesus is sitting on the throne. No other way. Again, Jesus is not your co-pilot. Go get in the right seat. In fact, go back into the fuselage. Back, I mean, go back in, way back in the back row. Sit back there and just w- let Jesus fly the whole darn thing. Yeah? Two, remember the grace that you did not earn. Again, verse 7, right? Why do you act as if you did, you've earned it? If you didn't get it on yourself on your own, why do you do it? Like, so why are you so allergic to grace? Well, we know that inside of us there's just this tension between us and God. And we still want to be like Adam, feel like we gotta figure this whole thing out and we can do life better apart on our own. But friends, you are people of grace, right? Not grace church, yes, but I mean grace. Remember the grace that you did not earn. Three, find and imitate faithful and mature followers. Paul talks here about they had lots of guides. Oh, we like our guides, right? We like our new book. We like our new conference speaker. Some of those can be well-meaning at times, I guess. But who are the guides God's put in your life? And Paul's not speaking here from the place of necessary an office of apostle, per se, or an office of even a pastor, although I think that's implied in some places here. But he's just talking about a mature believer who became their father because he preached the gospel to them and he became their father in the faith. And so he's not necessarily boistering fathers here. He's saying, like, he's saying mature Christians. And so as much as we need fathers in the faith, we need mothers in the faith who invest love and disciple men and women in Christ. It's... It's their desire to help and partner with them. That's why we do men's and women's groups here. And while we were continuing, we're going to restructure and strengthen them hopefully over the next few months. Because we want you with other believers and, and maybe even one particular believer who can invest in your life because we need faithful, f- mature followers to emulate. And he even says, imitate me. Now, now, here's what's interesting about this. He's not saying imitate me and then countering all the other things he's talked about up to this point, Okay. But he's saying, imitate me because ultimately my life is worth imitating because I'm resting in Christ. I am living 
in the Spirit, and, and, I'm, and I'm trusting in God's revealed word and in His Son, Jesus. Paul will later write a letter. Bad company corrupts good character, right? And so, in other words, it's important that we put the right people around us. It's important that we imitate good, mature followers. And if you don't have that person in your life, please let me or one of the elders or one of the deacons or anyone else member in this church help you get connected to someone like that. It doesn't have to be in a group. It could be just a lunchtime meeting with some people. But it also does imply spiritual leaders, though. I said it's not implicitly here, but it does imply at least. Uh, uh, or it's not expressed explicitly here, but it does imply, right? It, it takes humility. It takes humility to, to, to trust the people God's put in your life, and especially those who've been put into authority. And Paul knows he's in this unique situation. He's an apostle. He's trained up Timothy. He's establishing pastors and churches, and he's trying to put himself in this situation. And again, he, it's, 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 not that he, um, it's not that he's trying to make a big deal about himself. He's just saying he's trying to point them to how do you grow up in the faith. He knows his unique situation. And we can think of Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Like elder oversight and pastor oversight and deacon service, they're benefits to the church. And I'll say that because it's hard to say that because I'm like one of the elders here, but it's true. It's the scriptures tell us this. And we should be in a place where we're submitting to that. If I'm not a pastor, I'm going to a church and I'm going to sit under that pastor's leadership. As long as he shows himself to be faithful to the word, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to trust him or, or the group of elders that are there and I'm going to trust that that's where God wants me to be and my family to be. To be. Like, so putting the cookies on the low shelf, one thing this means is that like, as an elder, his words or uh, matter more than Tucker Carlson or... Anderson Cooper, just trying to give you both facts with, right? Just trying to give you both sides. Or any political commentator or politician, celebrity pastor, or even beloved former pastor. Like, God has not called you to submit to them. He's called you to be in this body at this point, unless the Lord leads you somewhere else. And so God, Paul is saying that we need good, faithful, spiritual men and women as followers, but also more specifically spiritual leaders, and we need to trust God, trust ourselves to them. And then his last thing, and then we'll be done. Ask yourself, am I mainly talk? I mean, that's what Paul says here at the end. He says, I'm going to come, I'm going to find out. But the kingdom doesn't exist in talk, it exists in power. And I'm going to expose the people who are just talking their faith. We're going to find out if their faith has any traction or not. We're going to find out if their talk has any traction or not. And so one of the ways to do a spiritual pride in our life is that, like, do I know the plays or do I run the plays? Right? If you're the sports analogy there, sorry. But it's one thing to sit on the sideline and be a, be a guy who's on, on the bench. You know all about the plays, but you're not running the plays. Does your life match your lips? Does your walk match your talk? If not, you may be struggling with some spiritual arrogance. Again, and we all find ourselves there often. See, spiritual arrogance is a weed. And it's something that we must kill often. Let's battle it. Let's battle it always. Let's pray.
Father, this morning as we finish up our time and we prepare for the Lord's table, God, would you just help us to take the word that we have received here this morning from, your, from 1 Corinthians, from Paul's letter, and God, let it examine our own hearts, um, examine us, Lord, and that we might live more freely in the light of the gospel and, and, the, and the power therein. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.